Howdy. Yes, it's another episode of the Gailey Podcast. I'm Alex. And I'm Robin. Today's guest is Maury Turner. They're running for House District 88 in Oklahoma, and they won against incumbent Jason Dunnington in their primary. They would be the first Black Muslim non-binary person to take office if they win in Oklahoma. Maury has a ton of history advocating for criminal justice reform and plans to bring that experience to the state capitol if they win in November. So before I go any further, let's jump into the episode. You put your hat in the race just months before the primary, and you beat the incumbent, Jason Dunnington. What inspired you to join at the last minute? Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it was the, the last minute, but I, so when I hit the ground running doing community organizing, um, specifically in Oklahoma City about two years ago, um, uh, and even more so before that when I was doing, um, when I was interning and working with um, the Council on American and Islamic Relations, sorry, that's my nephew, um, uh, if you hear him like cooing in the back, um, uh, but um, I just realized that House District 88 being one of the most liberal, if not the most liberal place in Oklahoma, um, uh, we should be the place where we are making um, or we are having those meaningful and those heartfelt conversations about what equitable and diverse um, policy looks like. Uh, and um, we just we deserve someone who's a community organizer who has been doing this work like in communities for years, right? So folks who have been picking up the pieces that our government kind of uh, picking up that infrastructural um, shortcoming that the government leaves for us, right? Filling those gaps. Um, and so when I hit the ground in back in 2018, I also started looking for folks to run because um, this was never the end goal for me. Um, uh, so I was looking for community organizers to run, um, folks with shared lived experiences, folks directly impacted by the system. And so, um, uh, or these institutions, right? And so um, that was like my first go-to was to look for folks. And so then folks started asking me if I was going to run. And the plan was to never run for office. First, the plan was to never run for office. And then the plan was to never run for office unless my community asked me to. Um, so I decided I would go ahead and, and listen to the advice that I'm always giving to, to youth, um, uh, it, whether it's in Generation Citizens courses or anything else like that, um, uh, or the alternative schools that I go and talk to about why, why it's important that we see ourselves and the folks who make, interpret, and enforce um, policies about our everyday lives. Um, so I listen to my community that was asking about seeing ourselves and those who make the decisions about our lives. And so that was, um, uh, and it was like, I think the final straw was, cause I had received, I had a lot of coffees with folks that had asked me to run. I received like Twitter and Instagram DMs about running and like the straw that broke the camel's back was like, I had one last DM and literally it just said, hey, happy Wednesday. I think you should run for office. And I was like, all right, let's do it. So, um, uh, Say it again. Oh, it was, it's meant to be. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I want to talk about House District 88 because the first openly gay House member and lesbian House member have both been a part of House District 88. What do you bring to the table to Oklahoma politics with your background and your experience? Right, for sure. Um, uh, I think 
For me, it's the big part about the shared lived experiences. So growing up um, in Oklahoma's public education system, growing up having a family or not a family member, having uh, my one of my parents incarcerated um, and seeing the grip that our carceral system holds um, uh, long after, holds on families long after they've left the prison system because you don't just incarcerate one person, you incarcerate a entire system, right? Uh, a community. And so, um, the shared lived experience of having that background of family members who are directly impacted by our prison system and me being impacted by our prison system, right? Um, the shared lived experience of, of fighting for, for religious freedoms, right? Not just like, not just being an ally, but actually like living that experience. Um, being born and raised Muslim in Oklahoma is a really kind of, it's an uphill battle. Um, and I think if you ask my friends, a lot of them will tell you that I came out as queer before I came out as Muslim to them. Um, uh, and some people will hear me say that relational organizing really saved my life. And I think in this day and age, I was, um, uh, what I mean by that is that like, spending that time for my friends growing up throughout elementary because that was something that I was very like always consciously doing throughout elementary school throughout middle school was making sure that my friends got to know me um, uh, outside of my sexual orientation outside of my religion right um, and so once I was able to come out as queer um, and come out as as Muslim um, a lot of my friends were like, oh, okay, like I didn't understand, like we didn't know these things until we got to have those conversations, right? Um, uh, there were some folks who, who left and, and didn't want anything else to do with me. Um, but um, so growing up um, directly impacted by our system, whether that's um, our, our legal system, our religious institutions, um, uh, what so have you, and, and community organizing. I was raised by community organizers, my mother, my grandmother, my aunts, my uncles. Um, uh, it was a system of folks who, who understood the importance of building deep community-based power. Um, and so I think that um, a, a combination of those things and, and who I am really kind of set the standard for, for leadership that we should, be look, we should be looking for in Oklahoma. And you're from Ardmore, right? Yep, yep. <laughs> so what, what are some of your earliest memories with community organizing in Ardmore? Absolutely. So um, my very first ones, um, when it comes to community organizing, I, so in elementary school, if I was missing school, um, it was a good portion because probably I was with my mom at an HIV and AIDS awareness conference or an LGBTQ plus like community advocacy conference, things like that. Um, also, I grew up in um, like Ardmore, Oklahoma on the other side of the tracks, right? Um, and uh, was a latchkey kid. So I spent um, a lot of my time either at the house or at our neighborhood community center. Um, and it was back when I was growing up, it was free. And it was just nice to be able to take a break from a school system that didn't necessarily look like me and to be able to go into an after school system or an evening and weekend system, um, uh, community based that uh, of folks who looks like me, right? I got to learn things about my community and different things like that. And, and so like being able to, so going on those conferences with my mom, um, that was our bonding time, right? So I got to learn about her, but also got to learn about community organizing and then also that community organizing aspect um, in, our, in our community center. But also um, uh, I grew up, so my dad is Muslim and my mom is Baptist or was Baptist. And um, uh, 
So we grew up in a, a, a Baptist church, right? So there was community organizing in every aspect of my life. Um, uh, and, and honestly, it really kind of, it, I mean, it molded me to who I am today, right? In, in a very big part because community-based power and community, like understanding that we can't make real changes without the community around us was just kind of how I was taught. Right. So um, honestly, everything from from school to, to extracurriculars, it, it all was community based. So. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about just, you know, your intersecting identities and growing up in Ardmore, Oklahoma. That must have forced <laughs> you to kind of like realize how dark the world is very early on. And how did yep. that how did that influence your policy making? Oh my goodness. Um, uh, so there were a, a, a lot of things, I think, that that and things that I'm continuously learning that will influence my, my policy making. Um, but I think kind of like the broader scope was the fact that everybody lives different lives and you won't be able, I'm sorry, it's like the train is like drowning. No, no, you're sorry. all good. I'm like <laughs> literally sitting on the porch in Ardmore, Oklahoma right now. <laughs> um, uh, and um, so uh, I think it was a combination of, of a lot of things um, and learning and understanding that we all come from different backgrounds and there are some things that I won't be able to necessarily experience, right? But the important part is to be able to listen to folks, right? To be able to, to understand where they're coming from and understand those hardships, right? That intersectionality that while I might not hold one of those intersections, that there are people who do, right? There are people who, who suffer and suffer differently than I do, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and who suffer, who survive, right? Who overcome differently than I do. Um, and so that was kind of a, a big part. Um, and I think for me, one of the, like my mom and I had a lot of kind of defining conversations throughout elementary school, but I think one of the ones that I think back to a lot was how I had had a rough day at in elementary school and I I don't know was I in first I was probably in first grade sorry my mom's over here too um uh, <laughs> hi mom <laughs> you say hello um uh but I remember coming home and what I felt like was just like a rough day and I'm a Capricorn so like I have always been like pretty self-aware um but I remember having a rough day and I come home and I talk to my mom and I'm just like honest with her and I was like you know what today feels like it would have been a lot better if I was white and to be a first grader, was I in first grade when that happened? Yeah, second grade. I was in second grade when that happened. Um, uh, and to, to be in elementary school, right? To be a second grader and to be aware of those things and to be able to, one, to be able to have those kinds of conversations with my mom, um, two, to be self-aware and understand that, but also I think it kind of formulated the fact that like, I feel like this and there are other people who feel like this too, right? Um, uh, and to understand that like, there will be things that we will forever have to overcome, right? In community, in public education, in policy making. And if we are not willing to, to listen to folks and to sit down and have those, those deep, difficult conversations, um, uh, then, then it's, it's gonna make our work a lot harder, right? So like at the legislature and community work period, right? So if that answered your question. Yeah, but how do you reconcile with, I mean, in Oklahoma, you know, we overwhelmingly voted for Trump. Mm -hmm. So how do you reconcile with people that you'll be representing who voted for Trump and maybe not, won't disagree, won't agree with you on everything? How do you uh, meet them halfway or even just like have a dialogue with them? Yeah, so I think a lot of the time like is kind of the verbiage that we use sometimes. Um, uh, and so when I say meeting people where they are, I mean like, like, 
legitimately like if that's a in like coffee shops houses homes but also in the words that we use right a lot of people have not um uh been exposed to verbiage that includes them um uh, and i think that even like with my own kind of identities those are things i had to find throughout um throughout elementary school middle school high school college now right continuously words are changing vocabulary is changing about how we talk about things and so if we are able to do that shadow work right so things that don't make us famous on instagram or twitter right but the work that that really kind of that we sit with and that hurts sometimes right but creates space to learn and grow um uh, i think that that does phenomenal work i think it's also understanding that a lot of the times when it comes to a shift in power dynamics and so i mean like if we are able to to shift from that power dynamic of this trump administration um it's scary right a lot of people who live their lives in the majority um are about to have to reconcile with something that they've never experienced before um and that is really scary uh and so having that conversation that that humanizes the fact that like being scared to move to the next step is very very real but also like there are folks who have had to live their lives in this scary um uh in this scary like system their entire lives like i'm 27 and people continuously ask me like how do you uh I'll, like someone asked me the other day was like how do you qualify being black muslim and queer um uh and, and people continuously like ask things like that and i think it's because like those are the words that they've been given but like in and maybe they don't mean any harm right but um figuring out how we have those conversations in an equitable way, right? Where we're not asking folks to live trauma, but actually to grow and learn with us. Um, and so I, I think it, it's being able to have a little bit of air of grace um, when we're having those conversations, but also understand that we're in 2020 mm -hmm. and, and time just keeps ticking and moving it and, and we should be able to grow and learn with the times too, right? So not just taking ownership for someone else's feelings, but also but like bringing them into the conversation and also saying like but it's also time that you you give a little bit too right i'm giving something in order to to grow and learn with you and i need you to be in that space with me yeah and i just i honestly don't know how you deal with the hate and ignorance that you get online because you know you posted some picture of ilhan omar when she endorsed yeah. you I was just seeing some crazy shit like <laughs> yeah. um like oh now now she doesn't like america oh hell no just like absolute crap like how i cannot imagine how you even stay sane being able to deal with that uh, honestly like um it like some of the things i think were pretty jarring when i first saw them sorry some of the things good. like were pretty jarring when i first saw them but yet again, like cannot reiterate enough, like I did everything I could because I knew that that was coming, right? That was something I was actively preparing for. Um, uh, um, but it doesn't mean like you won't feel anything when it comes, right? Um, but one thing I mm -hmm. did kind of find solace in was that like the things that I were seeing were mostly coming from outside of Oklahoma. I think it would have hit a lot differently um, uh, if the things that I saw were coming from folks inside of Oklahoma. Um, and so it means mm -hmm. that like, uh, but also, to take a step back and say like these are things like so there are, there are some friends that i did not tell that i was muslim and queer until college but there are some folks that knew like growing up right um i came out to my mom also in the second grade <laughs> like um uh and so um 
these are things that I've had to live with and deal with like my entire life. Um, and so that has really prepared me for it. Um, but also in being able to, so it wasn't just like a, I got an Ilhan uh, Omar, a Congresswoman Omar endorsement. We sat, like we had conversations, like we talked about it and like it was able, like it was at visibility. Cause I remember like back in 2016, back in 2018, I saw this, this woman, this phenomenal woman and I was like, she looks like me, right? Like, this is amazing, right? And it was so transformative for me, right? And then to be able a few years later to sit down with her and say like, hey, I'm thinking about running and I wanna know like your thoughts, how did you navigate these things, right? To be able to form that system um, and get that kind of, that knowledge and, and just to be able to create a space for, for us to, to learn and grow together was amazing and really helped with with whatever was coming, right? Um, and then also like my friends and my family, I help my mom and my sister, I come down on the weekends and help take care of my nephew and um, uh, and my friends that I, I still have the same group of friends that like I grew up with, like we all went to college together, we all grew up in Ardmore together. Um, uh, and so they were very, very, like I leaned on my friends and family very, very hard throughout this um, campaign. And um, just being able to, to have that support system really, really helped. And also, I'm not gonna lie, and I don't know if it sounds vain or not, but like this election like is historic, right? Our primary was historic, our general will be historic. And it felt really good to walk away from the primary with more than just a moral victory, but an actual victory. But the fact that like people saw themselves in this campaign in, in a lot of different aspects, like four, like over 400 individual donors to a state House of Representatives election is unheard of, right? Over or, or around 90 individual volunteers, like like things like that are unheard of. And I think it's because like we didn't just we didn't come out to do a campaign, but we. We made a movement, right? We are continuing. We are continuing on this movement, um, uh, mm -hmm. and so like that also really helped to see that like while a lot of hate came from outside of Oklahoma, so did so much love and support. Um, uh, and so like honestly, like yet again, like that community-based like healing too is what was really kind mm -hmm. of transformative about this campaign and really helped me get through it. It, it must have been overwhelming just getting the election results and beating an incumbent that's been there since 2014. Yeah, like I don't, I would break down in tears if I were you. That's beautiful. <laughs> I, like people will tell you, like I, I, I don't cry much, um, uh, and I don't really get nervous about too much because yet again, like navigating life as a solely as a black woman in Oklahoma, like there are a lot of things that just kind of really desensitize you, um, uh, and so. But like when the election, like the day of the election, me and my mom were just kind of driving around different, doing different things. We went and got food from the loaded bowl. She really likes the loaded bowl. I really like the loaded bowl. <laughs> um, uh, and so like we go to the diversity center a little bit early to set up um, and about an hour before, like I kind of start shaking a little bit. And then like my brand, my best friend and brand manager, like was coming in he was like just kind of giving me a few little updates and then like once the actual results were in, or when when the initial like final results were in my campaign manager came in and um he was like i just like want to let you know like we won a majority of the precincts because like the news that i had heard before that was that um uh was that the incumbent had won 
the mail-in votes. And I was like, because in my head, I was just like, everybody's going to mail-in vote. Like, that just makes sense. But also, it's like inaccessible, right? Poll taxes, Oklahoma legislature, things will hope to change in the future. Um, uh, but, and so I was already like, okay. Uh, and then my, and so in my head, I was like, okay, so we didn't do it, but that's okay. We'll get, we'll do it next time. Um, and then the initial final results rolled in and my campaign manager, Aaron Wilder came in and he said, um, so we won, uh, I think like nine of the, of the precincts. And I was like, okay. And I was trying to wrap my head around it. Cause in my head, I wasn't like sure what he was saying. And I was like, wait, so are you saying that we're going to the general election? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, wow, like, okay. And then I, and I was like, okay. And so I like the shaking kind of stopped. And then I looked at my mom and my nephew and I just cried. And I was like, we did it. Like, um, and I was, I couldn't be more proud um, because it wasn't, it wasn't just me, Aaron and James that did it. It was literally those 400 plus um, uh, donors. It was those 90 individual volunteers. It was House District 88 that showed up and they had been asking for change for a long time. And, and, and so they brought it. It, it had nothing, um, uh, not, not so much to do with us, but, but more so House District 88 and, and everybody that kind of were, was here to build this movement. And so mm -hmm. it was, it was shocking. It was jarring. And yeah, I'm still kind of trying to like reel it down or and come back and center and get ready for the general. But like we're here and it feels really good. Yeah. Even Jason Dunnington like said some something really nice about about you and he was like, I'm so glad that you know you're gonna be able to beat who who's who's running against you on the Republican ticket. Um, his name is Kelly Barlene. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Has he has he been pretty has he been hostile towards you has he talked to you what's been your relationship like with him i um we we have not spoken to each other i have not heard from him the only thing that um i've seen from him is his website um and that's about it so um hoping that maybe one day we'll get a chance to sit down and talk but um if that doesn't happen for the before the general election it's not something i'm worried about we are going, we are, we have started our volunteering opportunities and we're going to hit the ground and we have hit the ground running, right? Um, uh, mm -hmm. And doing this like, like he's about to run the best campaign we've ever seen, right? And so um, that, that's all I'm worried about right now. <laughs> yeah. And so I want to, I just want to talk about like your, your, the issues that you bring up on your website. Um, you said that the state has brought middle of the road solutions to big issues like criminal justice reform, education and wage reform. Um, these are all obviously like big and daunting issues that most politicians mention, but what concrete steps would you like to take to make that change starting with criminal justice? For sure. I think it's kind of important to, not kind of, I think it's important to note that, um, so back in 2018, there was this expansive package of criminal justice reform initiatives and I or pieces of legislation and when I say expensive I think there were like probably maybe 15 of them and at the end of it all we saw was the state question 780 retroactivity piece like that was the only criminal justice um, reform piece of legislation that made it through um, and I think like in a state like Oklahoma where we don't have angrier people we don't have worse people we just have more archaic and more gender biased laws we actually have to take a step forward and rather and just rather than just pay lip service to the fact that like oh yeah we had the largest commutation in history 
um, uh, we had um, uh, the longest commutation, commutation in a uh, single uh, sitting commutation in US history, rather than just being proud about that. It's like really put, like pouring into the justice reform initiatives that we want, right? So the 780, like the way it was originally written, like there were so many more people that should have been reunited with their families, mm -hmm. but it was nipped and tucked and, and, uh, mm -hmm. and, and the process was really bottlenecked. And mm -hmm. so, even in 2019, it, it, honestly, up until 2020, I still get phone calls of family members who are waiting for their families to come, mm. family members to come home, right? Wait, before um, you go any further, uh, can, you, can you explain 780 for our viewers who don't understand oh, it? yes. Okay, so 780, um, uh, state question 780 happened back in 2016 was on the ballot. And so what it did was take um, minor, um, property offenses and drug offenses from felonies to misdemeanors, meaning like you wouldn't go to prison, um, uh, you would pay a fine, um, uh, things like that. And so, um, uh, so criminal or justice reform initiatives were things that folks had tried to get passed at the legislature for years and it didn't work. And so we understood that if we needed to make real change and we had to put things like that in the hands of the people, which is where state questions come from. There are groups of people who really believe in something, they come together uh, to form a state question about them, and then the people get to vote on them rather than your like rather than your representation getting to vote on it, um, uh, which is how we get Medicaid expansion in 2020, thanks to state question 802. Um, and so, uh, so justice reform legislation had people had been looking at it and trying to pass it in the legislature for years and it didn't happen so we got state question 780 back in 2016 um, and it took um, drug offenses and property offenses from felonies to misdemeanors and that um, and I think the the thinking behind creating that taking those things from felonies to misdemeanors was the fact that the top three things that drive Oklahoma's prison system are property offenses drug offenses and if you go to prison in Oklahoma you stay roughly 80% longer than any place else for those things right um, uh, and so uh, so, which gets us to state question 805, which will be on the ballot ballot this November as well. But, um, sorry, I like went on a tangent, but so. No, you're all good. I love it. 780 is. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. And then um, can, can, you, can you explain 805 for us? Yes. So how 780 tackled the um, property offenses and drug offenses, state question 805 tackles the fact, or sorry, I guess I just too low now, tackles um, uh, the fact that if you go for those things, you stay 80%, roughly 80% longer. So it puts an end to sentence enhancements. So a lot of the times for drug offenses and for property offenses, you see people um, uh, um, stealing and or selling property that does not belong to them or um, selling drugs. And because we also create, and this is it's like a cyclical thing, which is like where all my platforms kind of come from. But the fact that we don't have an economic system in Oklahoma that creates a space for families to, families barely survive. And so we know that they're not thriving here. We, we don't pay them enough, right? So that's where our living wages come from. But um, uh, so families or individuals um, uh, end up sometimes doing these things in order to make ends meet, right? To, because we have one in, I think one in five families in Oklahoma as a whole has to choose between what basic essentials to provide for their families each month, 
And so that's when we get um, uh, our drug offenses and our property offenses, um, our drug charges and our property charges. And so um, if you've been in contact with the prison system or the jail system once and you come in contact with them again, so rather than giving you the maximum of what that, of what that carries, so say you're um, so you got in trouble for property or drug offenses once, and then you got in trouble for property or drug offenses again, and the weight of that is two years in prison, they'll, um, a, a lot of the times um, prosecutors will look at you and say, well, this happened before and you didn't learn your lesson, so we're going to give you past the maximum. So if it was two years, then sometimes they'll give you 10 years. Um, uh, and, and when it comes to drug offenses, this is why we have people in Oklahoma sitting in prison for life for drug offenses, right? Um, rather than creating an economic floor where folks don't have to sell drugs to make ends meet, mm -hmm. um, we could raise the living wage um, uh, and, and we could really eliminate those things. We could also create a system where uh, an in integrated healthcare system where it's not tied to your employer necessarily, but if you need to go to the hospital, you can. Um, things mm -hmm. like that, right? Um, where we don't lean heavily on a carceral system that's based on revenge, but uh, on community systems that actually, mm -hmm. that we've actually seen once we pump funds into them, our communities thrive, right? We know that heavily policed areas are not the areas that, um, uh, that are the safest, right? Um, mm -hmm. areas with resources are the areas that are the safest, so. Are there any judges that you have in mind that have like perpetuated this incarceration system? Oh goodness. Um, uh, I, I think the thing that uh, I heavily try to highlight and, and lean on is the fact that our prosecutors have the most power when it comes to things like that. So, um, 97% of cases that are handled are handled via plea bargain um, by district attorneys. And so that means that instead of taking your case to trial, district attorneys will say, you could go to trial, but if you lose, you could face 30 years in prison. But if you just go ahead and plead guilty to this charge or a lesser charge, then I'll just give you 10 years in prison. And a lot of the times that happens. Um, uh, and so the power that district attorneys have to change the trajectory of Oklahomans um, is really phenomenal and also very daunting. We only have 27 mm -hmm. district attorneys um, uh, and they really hold, they uphold our justice system. Um, and we can kind of see that with everything that's going on in Norman and in Oklahoma, uh, in Cleveland County, should I say, and in Oklahoma County. Um, uh, I think uh, one of the big things that are on communities' minds, and I think specifically in House District 88, is the fact that um, um, we saw an upcharge. So after the protest happened, we saw an upcharge with, with folks being charged with terrorism and things like that. Um, uh, and so, um, if district attorneys just like aren't feeling you or aren't having a good day, then then they hold the power mm -hmm. to, to make those charges. Yeah, and I want to I want to talk more about that. The district attorney that charged these Black Lives Black Lives Matter protesters with terrorism, he was a Democrat. So with that being said, had I've asked a lot of members of the Democratic Party, how do you reconcile with differences like that? Someone as progressive as you versus someone who's you know doing these horrible things. Um, uh, I think a lot of it, I think when it comes to something like that, 
it becomes a different conversation rather than just like, oh, okay, this is a difference in opinion. Um, that's a difference in morality. Um, exactly. uh, that's a difference in, and sometimes, and maybe in this case, I don't know, but that's also a difference in weaponizing these and ours, right? Um, uh, and, and so I think sometimes people lean too heavily on a D and on an R rather than what truly gets community to its best place at the end of the day. Um, uh, I think we've seen time and time again a lot of folks who, who moonlight as Democrats and are not. Um, uh, and, and sometimes when we have folks who are disillusioned by politics or um, folks who don't do research into politics, that D and that R is like where they get caught up. And so some, in some cases, people will put a D or an R behind their name in order to, to win an election because they know that people won't do that, that research, right? And yeah. that's where my work around prosecutorial education really kind of stems from. So, um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's what you do. You need to run on the truth and what's the best for the Oklahoma people. I was talking to a former Oklahoma senator, senator and... Um, they were a Democrat, but they said that they were fighting against Republicans and Republicans, meaning, you know, most Democrats acted like Republicans. And so going back to just incarceration in your own community, your, your dad must be so proud of you that you're working on these issues. Right. Yeah, um, I think, so it was kind of like, maybe like that movie-esque serendipitous moment, but so my father and I had been estranged for a while and, um, uh, but also like in being raised with um, Islamic and, and, and Christian principles, like there's that principle of like honor thy mother and thy father, right? And so um, uh, truly like loved him and, and, and wished the best for him, but like we just like weren't on speaking terms. But one evening when I was doing work with CARE, um, we, I think it was a banquet. We had put on a banquet one evening and my mom came up to the city to attend the banquet and I got a call from, and my mom doesn't leave Ardmore too much. She just walked around the corner. My mom doesn't leave Ardmore too much. Um, uh, but um, so this weekend or this evening she came up and I get a call from my great uncle who also went to OSU and was living in Stillwater. And he asked me if I knew what, about what had happened to my papa, my dad. and he um, told me that he had a really bad car accident. And so my mom and I left the banquet and we went over. And so for the next week, I got to sit by my Baba's side and I got to hear his story. I didn't know he wanted to be a teacher, right? I didn't know that we were honestly more alike than we were different. Um, and I, that moment was like when it all kind of clicked. It was something I always kind of knew at the back of my mind, but that was the moment when it clicked that I, um, uh, that was a moment when it clicked that Oklahoma's justice system does a really phenomenal job of tearing families apart long after they leave the criminal system. And that even means like the way that we talk about people, right? Um, people who are, who are justice involved. Um, and so uh, that was the week, cause I, I went to OSU to become a vet. And so like, that was the week I was like, okay, I'm not gonna do that anymore. I'm, I'm going into community organizing to figure out how to fix Oklahoma's justice system. Um, mm -hmm. And so, uh, and like when I first was like, okay, this is it. I'm going to do it. Before I got to that point, I had called my mom and my dad to talk to them about it, to see like what their thoughts and what their feelings were. Because like, I also know in politics, sometimes people will come after you for some of the most like human characteristics about you. Right. Um, uh, and so like wanted to know like how they felt about it. And like, 
um, how they felt about talking about these things. Um, and, and my dad, um, he was like, he said, I'm always here. I'm very proud of you. And, and I couldn't be more proud of you and what you do. And he said, I've never worried about your future. Um, uh, and I feel really good about the future of Oklahoma. And so um, uh, I, I am, I'm very thankful to, to have the parents that I have and, and honestly to have the upbringing that I had. I, I, the horrible things that happen in Oklahoma and, and the, the uphill battles that we face are not necessarily things that I think everybody needs to be exposed to, but I wouldn't be here without them. And I'm very thankful for them and how my mother and my father raised me and my mother and, and my grandmother and my aunts and uncles kind of raised me to deal with those things. Um, so, um, yes, from what I know, my dad is very proud. <laughs> that is beautiful. And when it comes to you fighting change in Oklahoma, what do you think has been the most, you know, your proudest moment when it comes to making change besides obviously winning the democratic ticket for house 88? Cause that's a big one. Um, uh, I think it was, I think if I had to pick something recent that I've been thinking about and processing, it was like, it wasn't just winning, but it was the amount of people who really understood deep community-based power and why we work in communities before the primary, leading up to it, everybody who had bought into it. Um, uh, and everybody, and then like the folks who realize that that is something that is very powerful after. So the calls that I got after on like, I didn't think this was something that was really going to happen. And I'm sorry, I wasn't there in the beginning, right? Those calls of people being like, of realizing that like community-based power is like where it's at, like that's how we make the change, right? Um, uh, folks that were like, I didn't, I didn't think it would happen before, but now I'm on board and now I understand like why it's important to have community at the center of what we do, right? And I mean, like that's like from folks in community um, all the way up to, to folks at the legislature, right? Um, uh, and so understanding that community, like community is what's going to, it's what brought us to this and it's what's going to bring us through this, right? Um, and so uh, I think the, the understanding and, and folks actually starting to wrap their minds around like how powerful community is. And that's like folks, like individuals who are just like, oh, like I didn't know we could do those things. I didn't know we can make that change too. Um, mm -hmm. those folks being like, we do have power and I'm glad that like, I, and thank you for showing that to us. Like that has like been one of the most humbling and one of the greatest experiences that I think I'll ever be able to, to be able to bear witness to. So mm -hmm. if that answered your and, question. <laughs> no, it did. And then when it comes to, you know, being a, uh, one of the representatives of the LGBT community in Oklahoma, how do you think the LGBT community can improve itself in Oklahoma? Because I've heard a lot of um, instances where it's been a lot of acts of racism committed or just misogyny or transphobia. How can you, as a, you know, when you win and even as a community activist, how can you make change within your own LGBT community? Um, I think it's, uh, it's still like that same notion of those difficult dialogues those difficult conversations and meeting people where they are. But I think it's also, um, it looks a little bit different in how you formulate those because the number one thing that I have heard, um, and like I have had white, gay, cis men call me the N-word and, and reconcile that with them also being um, oppressed. And, and so like, it's understanding that, that 
this is not the oppression wars. This is not the oppression Olympics, right? Like, um, and, and, and the type that oppression that I deal with does not mean that you, and the type of oppression that you deal with don't equate in the sense that it doesn't give you the right to weaponize language against me, right? Um, uh, and understanding that like we go through different things and we navigate those differently and they and they they will be different but our liberation is tied together if I am not completely liberated you are not completely li completely liberated and if you are not completely liberated then I am not um, and so I and I often think about the conversation like where um, someone asked me to, like what I mentioned earlier when someone asked me to qualify being black Muslim and queer um, uh, and it's that language, right? Meeting people where they are in that language, but also understanding that um, if you're an ally, then that means that you also do the work, right? Not just painting streets, not just throwing a black square up on your Instagram. It means that you take the time to not only think and have conversations, but you do a little research on your own, right? On yeah. oppressive histories. And I think about it um, also in terms of so there was this challenge accepted um, thing that was happening on Instagram. I think it might still be happening where, where women were uplifting women and, and throwing up a black and white photo of themselves. And they were just saying like challenge accepted. And so like, I started to kind of do a little research on like where that came from. Right. And that, that's that shadow work. And then I saw where Muslim girl had posted like also like where it came from, but it was like challenge accepted came from, stemmed from the fact that um, femicide and is running rampant in Turkey right now. There are women in Turkey that are being murdered um, by um, current partners, by old partners. Um, uh, and, and that's what I mean when I talk about shadow work is like understanding because like we should be, we use that platform, right? To raise awareness. Like we, we should be continuously doing that work, continuously doing that research, right? Not just like blatantly saying like, oh, okay. If it's a black square, I guess I need to post a black square. Do I need to turn my, my profile photo blue? I'll turn it blue, right? We gotta do that research. We gotta dig a little bit deeper. Um, uh, and, and so when we talk about that in, in marginalized communities as opposed to um, uh, minority and majority communities, um, those conversations, those typical dialogues look a little bit different, but um, we, we've gotta, but one thing that holds true is that we've gotta continuously like do that work to understand like, how I may be playing a role in the oppression of somebody else if I don't do that work, right? Mm -hmm. so. No, I mean, I was just, I was just noticing like in every community that you're a part of, they have some ignorance with uh, another part of your identity. And it's just like, to me, yes. it shows you have, a, you have a, you have a high tolerance for bullshit. That's all I can say. Cause you're very, you're very graceful with that. I, I'm just, I applaud you for that. Cause that's, that's a lot to deal with. Um, that was like one of my biggest things like heading into this was like, uh, like, because it was something that I always like knew, right? Like each part of like my identity has something that's an issue with another part of my identity. And so like, and that's like why I do, like why I try to do the work that I do, right? That's why I sit on the, like, and I choose the boards that I'm a part of and the community organizations that I join like very carefully to try to always raise awareness about that intersectionality, right? That Kimberly Crenshaw talks about, right? So, um, uh, and so like, that's why I was like, okay, I will like, I became a board member of Freedom Oklahoma. I became a board member of CARE Oklahoma. I, I work with ACLU Oklahoma. I 
um, and before doing all of that, I made sure like my basis work was like in, with the NAACP of Oklahoma, right? And still am able to do work with them to this day. And so um, uh, making sure that like I tried to not only highlight and fight for the, the one kind of topical issue that each of these organizations fights for, but also highlighting that intersectionality um, and like I'm here and I stand in that intersection and I know I'm not the only one. I know. I know I'm not the only one who stands in this intersection in Oklahoma, right? And so fighting so that everybody else can can stand in the same sunlight with me. Do you get a lot of messages from Oklahomans saying, thank you for representing me? I never thought I would see someone that looks like me running for office in Oklahoma. Oh my goodness, yes. And like, the funny thing about it is it's like, it's not even just like from people who are like of age to vote, like, there are there are kids in the in the um, or there are young folks right in, in in House District 88 and around Oklahoma that are like we've never seen someone that looks like us or I've never I've never experienced a campaign like this or or have been excited about a candidate like this in the way that I that I am about you right um, and, and that visibility is like a really big part in the beginning a lot of people were worried they were like well why are you running against a safe dim like he's done everything for us and. The thing is, like, it's that topical lens, right? He He's done a, a, a good portion to bring us to where we are, right? But there are folks who are continuously carved out. Um, and that's what this campaign was about, right? Making sure that everybody, like, we didn't just have an ally, but we had representation fighting for us, folks with our shared lived experiences. Um, and so to get notes from, like, seven and eight year olds about like how they're happy that there's someone that looks like them right to hear about to hear from fathers of muslim children um uh saying like i'm excited that there's a muslim woman that my children that my daughters can look up to right um to think about these things and to hear these things um uh has been like honestly one of the most humbling experiences that i could have ever been a part of and and I, I'm really grateful to be able to be in this seat. Um, uh, but uh, I think the hope is that Oklahoma would have gotten here some, some like or, without me, right? Um, at some point in time, but but I yet again can't stress enough like how thankful I am to be in this seat and, and the messages that I continuously get. I get some, like I get cards, postcards, things like that. And, and it's, they're all really amazing. Mm. And the, another question I have, this is a very basic question, but I just, I love your style. And would you wear your iconic overalls at inauguration? You know what? I was thinking about it. Um, uh, and like, I really want to. I also have this coveted green tuxedo that I never, like, it's like a, like a forest green um, velvet tuxedo that I never get to wear. So I'm like thinking about it, but I'm also thinking about getting a, a new pair of overalls for, for inauguration. So we'll see, we'll see. <laughs> Please do that. I would love that. And um, there's one question that I always ask everyone that's been on this podcast is, are you proud to be an Oklahoman and why? I I can say without a doubt that I am very, very proud to be an Oklahoman, and I'm very, very proud to be a member of House District 88. Um, my life was kind of tied to that area um, uh, long before moving there. Uh, my brother went to OCU, and so we always spent time in the city, specifically in House District 88 and in the Paseo. We played music, I don't know, uh, Carlton Dorsey. Some people might know him, I don't know. Um, uh, but, um, and so my, my, heart, my heart and my body and my soul has been tied to 88 for a long time, but 
in the communities that I've been a part of and been able to work with, I couldn't be more proud uh, of the Oklahomans that are still here and still fighting. You know, we have a bit, a really big like brain drain, but I, I couldn't be more proud to, when I look over and I see community organizers that I get to work with every day and community organizers like my mother, right, that are still doing this work. I, I couldn't be more proud to be an Oklahoman and, and to see that we made this historic stride and that we're continuing to do so. Um, yes, absolutely. Man, it feels like Maury was born to be an activist with all the experience they have. And we want to know what you thought of their story. If you want to learn more about their campaign, we've linked their website below. Once again, I'm Alex. And I'm Robin. And you've just watched another episode of the Gailey Podcast. <laughs>